Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. July 31. On this date in history in the year 1964, the Ranger 7 photographs the moon. Ranger 7, an unmanned U.S. lunar probe, takes the first close-up images of the moon. 4,308 in total before it impacts with the lunar surface northwest of the Sea of Clouds. The images were 1,000 times as clear as anything ever seen through Earth-bound telescopes. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, had attempted a similar mission earlier in the year with Ranger 6, but the probe's cameras had failed and it descended to the lunar surface. Ranger 7, launched from Earth on July 28, successfully activated its cameras in 17 minutes, or 1,300 miles, before impact and began beaming the images back to NASA's receiving station in California. The pictures showed that the lunar surface was not excessively dusty or otherwise treacherous to a potential spacecraft landing, thus lending encouragement to the NASA plan to send astronauts to the moon. In July 1969, two Americans walked on the moon in the first Apollo program lunar landing mission. August 1. On this date in history, in the year 1943, Operation Tidal Wave, U.S. forces attempt risky air raid on access oil refineries. On August 1, 1943, 177 B-24 bombers take off from an Allied base in Libya, bound for the oil-producing city Ploiesti, Romania, nicknamed Hitler's gas station. The daring raid, known as Operation Tidal Wave, resulted in five men being awarded the Medal of Honor, three of them posthumously, but failed to strike the fatal blow its planners had intended. Operation Tidal Wave began ominously, with an overloaded bomber crashing shortly after takeoff and another plunging into the Adriatic Sea. 167 of the original 177 bombers made it to Ploiesti, whose oil fields and refineries provided the Germans with over 8.5 million tons of oil per year. Whereas most Allied bombing in World War II was carried out from a high altitude, the bombers that raided Ploiesti flew exceptionally low in order to evade the Germans' radar. The bombers lost the element of surprise, however, when one group veered off onto the wrong direction, forcing the others to break radio silence in order to direct them back on course. This unplanned adjustment also led to the bombers approaching from the south, where the Nazis had concentrated their anti-aircraft batteries. The ensuing attack was dramatic, chaotic, and costly. 
the Allies suffered heavy casualties and smoke from the explosions caused by the first wave of bombers made visibility difficult for subsequent waves. Survivors reported debris like branches and barbed wire hitting and even ending up on the inside of their planes. Lieutenant Colonel Addison Baker and Major John Jerstad were awarded the Medal of Honor for their unsuccessful attempt to fly higher and allow the crew to bail out of their badly damaged plane. Another pilot, Lieutenant Lloyd Herbert Hughes, also received a posthumous Medal of Honor for flying his critically damaged B-24 into its target. Colonel John Kane and Colonel Leon Johnson, who led bombing groups that reached their targets, were the only men who were awarded the Medal of Honor and survived the raid. Although the Allies estimated that the raid had reduced Ploiesti's capacity by 40%, the damage was quickly repaired and within months the refineries had outstripped their previous capacity. The region continued to serve as Hitler's gas station until the Soviet Union captured it in August of 1944. 310 airmen died. 108 were captured, and another 78 were interned in neighboring Turkey. 88 of the original 177 B-24s returned, most of them seriously damaged. Despite setting the record for most medals of honor awarded to airmen in a single mission, Operation Tidal Wave was never repeated. The Allies never again attempted a low-altitude assault against German air defenses. August 2. On this date in history, in the year 1945, the Potsdam Conference concludes. The last wartime conference of the Big Three, the Soviet Union, the United States, and Great Britain, concludes after two weeks of intense and sometimes acrimonious debate. The conference failed to settle most of the important issues at hand and thus helped set the stage for the Cold War that would begin shortly after World War II came to an end. The meeting at Potsdam was the third conference between the leaders of the Big Three nations. The Soviet Union was represented by Joseph Stalin, Britain by Winston Churchill, and the United States by President Harry S. Truman. This was Truman's first Big Three meeting. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who died in April 1945, attended the first two conferences in Tehran in 1943 and Yalta in February 1945. At the Potsdam meeting, the most pressing issue was the post-war fate of Germany. The Soviets wanted a unified Germany, but they also insisted that Germany be completely disarmed. Truman, along with a growing number of U.S. officials, had deep suspicions about Soviet intentions in Europe. The massive Soviet army already occupied much of Eastern Europe. A strong Germany might be the only obstacle in the way of Soviet domination of all of Europe. In the end, the Big Three agreed to divide Germany into three zones of occupation, one for each nation, and to defer discussions of German reunification until a later date. The other notable issue at Potsdam was one that was virtually unspoken. Just as he arrived for the conference, Truman was informed that the United States had successfully tested the first atomic bomb. Hoping to use the weapon as leverage with the Soviets in the post-war world, Truman casually mentioned to Stalin that America was now in possession of a weapon of monstrously destructive force. 
The president was disappointed when the Soviet leader merely responded that he hoped the United States would use it to bring the war with Japan to a speedy end. The Potsdam Conference ended on a somber note. By the time it was over, Truman had become even more convinced that he had to adopt a tough policy toward the Soviets. Stalin had come to believe more strongly that the United States and Great Britain were conspiring against the Soviet Union. As for Churchill, he was not present for the closing ceremonies. His party lost in the elections in England and he was replaced midway through the conference by the new Prime Minister, Clement Attlee. Potsdam was the last post-war conference of the Big Three. August 3. On this date in history, in the year 1958, a Nautilus submarine travels under the North Pole. On August 3, 1958, the U.S. nuclear submarine Nautilus accomplishes the first undersea voyage to the geographic North Pole. The world's first nuclear submarine, the Nautilus, dived at Point Barrow, Alaska, and traveled nearly 1,000 miles under the Arctic ice cap to reach the top of the world. It then steamed onto Iceland, pioneering a new and shorter route from the Pacific to the Atlantic and Europe. The USS Nautilus was constructed under the direction of U.S. Navy Captain Hyman G. Rickover a brilliant Russian-born engineer who joined the U.S. Atomic Program in 1946. In 1947, he was put in charge of the Navy's nuclear propulsion program and began work on an atomic submarine. Regarded as a fanatic by his detractors, Rickover succeeded in developing and delivering the world's first nuclear submarine years ahead of schedule. In 1952, the Nautilus's keel was laid by President Harry S. Truman, and on January 21, 1954, First Lady Mamie Eisenhower broke a bottle of champagne across its bow as it was launched into the Thames River at Groton, Connecticut. Commissioned on September 30, 1954, it first ran under nuclear power on the morning of January 17, 1955. Much larger than the diesel-electric submarines that preceded it, the Nautilus stretched 319 feet and displaced 3,180 tons. It could remain submerged for almost unlimited periods because its atomic engine needed no air and only a very small quantity of nuclear fuel. The uranium-powered nuclear reactor produced steam that drove propulsion turbines allowing the Nautilus to travel underwater at speeds in excess of 20 knots. In its early years of service, the USS Nautilus broke numerous submarine travel records and on July 23, 1958, departed Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on Operation Northwest Passage, the first crossing of the North Pole by submarine. There were 160 men aboard for this historic voyage, including Commander William R. Anderson, 111 officers and crew, and four civilian scientists. The Nautilus steamed north through the Bering Strait and did not surface until it reached Point Barrow, Alaska, in the Beaufort Sea, 
though it did send its periscope up once off the Diomedes Island between Alaska and Siberia to check for radar bearings. On August 1, the submarine left the north coast of Alaska and dove under the Arctic ice cap. The submarine traveled at a depth of about 500 feet, and the ice cap above varied in thickness from 10 to 50 feet, with the midnight sun of the Arctic shining in varying degrees through the blue ice. At 11.15 p.m. EDT on August 3, 1958, Commander Anderson announced to his crew, For the world, our country, and the Navy, the North Pole. The Nautilus passed under the geographic North Pole without pausing. The submarine next surfaced in the Greenland Sea between Spitsbergen and Greenland on August 5. Two days later, it ended its historic journey at Iceland. For the command during the historic journey, President Dwight D. Eisenhower decorated Anderson with the Legion of Merit. After a career spanning 25 years and almost 500,000 miles steamed, the Nautilus was decommissioned on March 3, 1980, designated a National Historic Landmark in 1982, the world's first nuclear submarine went on exhibit in 1986 as the historic ship Nautilus at the Submarine Force Museum in Groton, Connecticut. August 4. On this date in history, in the year 1753, George Washington becomes a Master Mason. George Washington, a young Virginia planter, becomes a Master Mason the highest basic rank in the secret fraternity of Freemasonry. The ceremony was held at the Masonic Lodge No. 4 in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Washington was 21 years old and would soon command his first military operation as a major in the Virginia Colonial Militia. Freemasonry evolved from the practices and rituals of the Stonemasons' guilds in the Middle Ages, with the decline of European cathedral building Lodges decided to admit non-stonemasons to maintain membership, and the secret fraternal order grew in popularity in Europe. In 1717, the first Grand Lodge, an association of lodges, was founded in England, and Freemasonry was soon disseminated throughout the British Empire. The first American Mason Lodge was established in Philadelphia in 1730, and future revolutionary leader Benjamin Franklin was a founding member. There is no central Masonic authority. The Freemasons are governed locally by the Order's many customs and rites. Members traced the origins of Masonry back to the erecting of King Solomon's Temple in biblical times and are expected to believe in the Supreme Being, follow specific religious rites, and maintain a vow of secrecy concerning the Order's ceremonies. The Masons of the 18th century adhered to liberal democratic principles that included religious toleration, loyalty to local government, and the importance of charity. From its inception, Freemasonry encountered considerable opposition from organized religion, especially from the Roman Catholic Church. For George Washington, joining the Masons was a rite of passage and an expression of his civic responsibility. After becoming a Master Mason, Washington had the option of passing through a series of additional rites that would take him to higher degrees. 
1788, shortly before becoming the first President of the United States, Washington was elected the first worshipful master of Alexandria Lodge No. 22. Many other leaders of the American Revolution, including Paul Revere, John Hancock, and Marquis de Lafayette, and the Boston Tea Party saboteurs were also Freemasons, and Masonic rites were witnessed at such events as Washington's presidential inauguration and the laying of the cornerstone of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., a city supposedly designed with Masonic symbols in mind. Masonic symbols approved by Washington in the design of the Great Seal of the United States can be seen on the $1 bill. The all-seeing eye above an unfinished pyramid is unmistakably Masonic, and the scroll beneath, which proclaims the advent of a new secular order in Latin, is one of Freemasonry's long-standing goals. The Great Seal appeared on the dollar bill during the presidency of Franklin D. Roosevelt, also a Mason. Freemasonry has continued to be important in U.S. politics, and at least 15 presidents, five Supreme Court chief justices, and numerous members of Congress have been Masons. Presidents known to be Masons include Washington, James Monroe, Andrew Jackson, James Polk, James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, James Garfield, William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Warren Harding, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and Gerald Ford. Today, there are an estimated 2 million Masons in the United States. August 5. On this date in history, in the year 1861, Abraham Lincoln imposes the first federal income tax. On August 5, 1861, President Lincoln imposes the first federal income tax by signing the Revenue Act. Strapped for cash with which to pursue the Civil War, Lincoln and Congress agreed to impose a 3% tax on annual incomes over $800. As early as March 1861, Lincoln had begun to take stock of the federal government's ability to wage war against the South. He sent letters to cabinet members Edward Bates, Gideon Wells, and Salmon Chase, requesting their opinions as to whether or not the president had the constitutional authority to collect such duties. According to documents housed and interpreted by the Library of Congress, Lincoln was particularly concerned about maintaining federal authority over collecting revenue from ports along the southeastern seaboard, which he worried might fall under the control of the Confederacy. The Revenues Act language was broadly written to define income as gain derived from any kind of property or from any professional trade, employment, or vocation carried on in the United States or elsewhere or from any source whatever. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, the comparable minimum taxable income in 2003 after adjustments for inflation would have been approximately $16,000. Congress repealed Lincoln's tax law in 1871, but in 1909 passed the 16th Amendment, which set in place the federal income tax system used today. Congress ratified the 16th Amendment in 1913. August 6. On this date in history, in the year 1996, researchers claim to have found signs of Martian life in an Antarctic meteorite. 
On August 6, 1966, NASA and Stanford researchers announced they have found signs of Martian life in a meteorite discovered 12 years earlier in Allen Hills, Antarctica, causing a worldwide sensation. But some viewed the announcement skeptically, and the Martian life connection was later debunked. A NASA spokesman initially called the evidence of fossilized one-celled organisms in the meteorite called ALH84001 exciting, even compelling, but not conclusive. I want everyone to understand that we are not talking about little green men, he said, according to the Washington Post. These are extremely small, single-cell creatures that somewhat resemble bacteria on Earth. There is no evidence or suggestion that any higher life form ever existed on Mars. Added Carl Sagan, the famous author and scientist, if it is truly a microfossil from ancient Martian history, it is a transforming discovery in the history of science. Not just that, but it provides a profound perspective on our place in the universe. Meteorites are remnants from the solar system's birth. They are chunks of debris that float through space and occasionally into Earth's orbit. When they fall into the atmosphere and burn before reaching the surface, they are called meteors. The Antarctica meteorite became one of the most studied rocks in history. The NASA announcement sparked calls for more studies of meteorites, especially ones that fall in remote Antarctica. If you want to collect dark things that fall from the sky, the ideal place to do it is on a big white tablecloth, and that's really what Antarctica is a planetary geologist told Florida Today. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for July 31st through August 6th. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.